well. Father, thank you for thank you for your church. Thank you that you have put this family together. Thank you for our extended families in the city, in the state, across the country that are meeting this morning to worship you, to study your word, to hear the gospel, and to learn learn your character and your love for us, Father. Uh, I just pray blessing on Pastor Dexley's sermon this morning that it is his, uh, your word that is not his, that he would decrease and you would increase, and I pray the same for myself, that as I preach this passage of scripture, that we learn more about your character and what it means for us to live in community with each other. We love you, Father. Amen. If I go home, is that better? <laughs> this morning, we are starting a short series through the book of Philemon. So if you could turn to the book of Philemon. We'll read that together in its entirety. It's a short book, so we'll read it together um, all at once, and then we'll, we'll get into it. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I, sake to, uh, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this purpose, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write you, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, I prepare, uh, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. As I mentioned, over the next three weeks, we'll be walking through the book of Philemon. This book is a letter, one of, I think it is Paul's shortest letter, and is written to his dear, dear friend Philemon. The tenderness of Paul's words in this letter gives us a small glimpse into the human side of the apostle, as well as what it looks like to practice, to live out gospel community, kingdom family. The letter is broken into three sections. Verses one through seven contain Paul's introduction. 
Verses 4 through 21 contain the body of Paul's letters uh, and Paul's request to Philemon, and verses 20 through to 25 are his conclusion and farewell. Today we're just looking at the first section. We're going to be walking through verses 1 through 7. Um, Brothers Enoch and Josh will be taking us through the next two sections over the next two weeks. But before we dive into the text itself, there's a little bit of background work that I want to do to set up the series and to give us some groundwork for the themes and the way that Paul is interacting with Philemon in this letter. Firstly, we see right from verse 1 that this letter was written by Paul himself. He identifies himself in the introduction as Paul, a prisoner for Christ, and then in verse 19, we see that Paul names himself again, having written the letter with his own hand. We see that he's writing to Philemon and the Colossian church, and it is thought that Paul wrote this from his time in prison, either in Ephesus or in Rome, and there are Uh, reasons for why each of those are thought to be the location of where he's writing from. I don't really think it matters a whole lot for us right now where he's writing from. What is important is the case study that God is providing us for how a Christian brother, a Christian leader, a Christian pastor navigates relationship, especially when relationships are difficult and messy. This letter gives us a story of three main characters, Onesimus, a runaway slave, a Christian slave owner, Philemon, and Paul, pastor, who champions the practicality of the gospel. We don't know very, we know very few details of the ins and outs of the story. What we do know is that Onesimus has fled his master, breaking the law, and causing social, relational, and perhaps even physical harm to Philemon and his household, as well as putting Paul at legal risk. Harboring a runaway slave was illegal, and anyone harboring the slave was subject to severe repercussions and consequences. Paul was already in prison, so we don't know what it means when Paul mentions that he would like for Onesimus to remain with him, but it was still risky for Paul to entertain Onesimus. Paul writes this letter to announce to Philemon and the Colossian church that Onesimus has been converted as a true believer, a true member, a true brother in the faith, and asks Philemon to take him back as a Christian brother. Now, just like with any sermon series, We only have time to deal with so much. And we don't have time to get into all of what the passage has to teach us. So I encourage you and hope that you all do study on this on your own. Let the Holy Spirit work in you uh, the way he will. Apologies. So what I'm gonna do is spend some time highlighting some of the overarching themes and the bigger ideas that carry weight throughout the whole book. But there's so much more to go through um, if we had the time. (coughs) So having said that, um, the themes that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at freedom. In all meanings of that word, we're going to look at spiritual freedom, physical freedom, relational freedom, in that we're going to be addressing the institution of human slavery, both as it has played out in human history as well as the way it is portrayed in scripture. We're gonna be looking at reconciliation, what it looks like, the importance of it, and the payoff of it and 
perhaps most prominently in kind of wrapping all of these up inside itself is the practice and teaching of Christian community. So this letter is a little bit different than his other letters. This letter is much more personal than perhaps a Romans or a, an Ephesians or perhaps even Corinthians which, or Galatians, which explicitly walk us through doctrines of the gospel, doctrines of the faith. This letter is a personal letter. This letter is from Paul to Philemon. And in that, we see a lot more personal language. We see an informality. We see a tenderness. We see relational language. But that doesn't mean there's any less theology in the letter. But Paul is demonstrating the theology that he is teaching in other books. The theology is much more implicit we see Paul teaching by doing rather than by lecturing or explaining the rich truths that we see in these verses. It's like Mr. Miyagi <laughs> teaching young Daniel-san karate by cleaning his car. Daniel did not know that he was learning karate through the mundane repetition. What did he, what did he tell Daniel-san? Wax on. Wax off. But there's a reason behind everything Mr. Miyagi taught at Daniel and did with Daniel. All of the seemingly unconnected tasks had a connection to the fundamental truth of the art of karate that Mr. Miyagi was teaching Daniel-san. Paul is doing very similar things here. there is a level of intimacy that we see between the characters in this book that demonstrate a depth of relationship that perhaps doesn't require as much explicit teaching, but more reminding, more reinforcing of what has already been told. So we don't see Paul lecturing Philemon, in fact the opposite. Paul specifically calls out, I have the power and the authority to command you, but I'm not going to. But what we see is this example of how we are to relate to each other. And I want to call out these points of theology so that we can keep an eye out for them as we go over the next few weeks. We're going to be looking, we'll see examples of the theology of the reality of redemption and regeneration. Paul is showing us what it looks like to live in the reality of God's sovereignty and his providence, and also what it looks like to live out a proper theology of justice. And these will make much more sense as we go through the book. A quick example for illustration. In the 1990s, the decade in which Pastor Dexley was born, <laughs> as he is keen to remind us. We saw the Hutu and Tutsi tribes slaughtering each other in the genocidal conflict in Rwanda, killing thousands simply based on what tribe one was born into. There have been books written, movies made, plenty of articles and case studies done by sociologists and historians of human hatred gone crazy, gone wild, human hearts gone bad. And it's a sober reminder of how dark the world can be when humans are left to our own devices. John, why have you brought this up? How is this connecting to community and, and slavery and all these things? The part that 
isn't as talked about in the Rwandan conflict is that 90% of Rwandans are professed Christians. Let that sink in for a second. 90% of the population of Rwanda profess to know Jesus Christ, profess to know the gospel. It's an example of what a theology can look like that emphasizes having a right relationship with Jesus, but ignores having a right relationship with each other. It is how Christian societies throughout history have tolerated homelessness, poverty, oppression. Church, if we don't have a solid theology of what following Jesus looks like, if we only have halfway gospel, then the effect that we're going to have on the community can be devastating, as we saw in Rwanda, as we've seen even in our own history. It is something that a one degree in navigation, if you are off on your compass reading by one degree, if you go 100 feet, you know, you're a few inches off your mark. But a one degree compass error, if you go 100 miles, you're in a different country. This is something we need to get right. Every single New Testament writer emphasizes community, service, self-sacrifice. We just heard a few weeks ago through our study in Philippians that Paul tells the Philippian church, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This is something we have to get right. So as we get into the text, I want to read verses 1 through 7 again just to bring us back to what we're going to be looking at more, de- more in depth. Philemon verse 1, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Paul begins the letter with the introduction, Paul, a prisoner for Christ. This is the only time that he says this although he's been imprisoned multiple times. And it is the only letter he does not refer to himself as an apostle outside of the Thessalonian letters in which he makes no qualifying introduction whatsoever. Paul is immediately demonstrating that he is not acting in any self-interest. Everything he does is for the service of Christ and the gospel. And he's also identifying with Onesimus' situation with his own lack of freedom. But more importantly, he is drawing a connection between the physical and the spiritual. He's keeping in focus the implications of what he is about to say to Philemon, that our physical circumstances are only a shadow and only have a, a, a small connection to the spiritual consequences of our life. Listen to the, Paul, that to- the, uh, the tone that Paul has adopted. Listen to all the names and specifically how those names are referenced. We see the words beloved, fellow, partner. We see all the familial language. And we see this throughout all of Paul's letters. Everything is done in community and in a sense of collective effort. And notice the source of all of this family. In verse 3, Paul wishes Philemon grace and peace from God our Father 
God our Father is a phrase that Paul opens every single one of his letters with. The idea of God as Father was radical in human history. No other world religion identifies God as personal Father, and especially in Judaism, to call God Father was sacrilegious, if not heretical, because of the high view that the Israelites had of God. God as Father was only mentioned a few times in the Old Testament, and the only person to refer directly to God as Father was Isaiah. But when Jesus teaches the disciples how to pray in Matthew 6 and Luke 11, it is exactly God as Father that we are told to pray and how we are told to relate to God. It teaches us that our identity and our position to God is one of family. The idea of family, the idea of adoption, was as much a legal status as it was a familial status, which had much deeper implications in the ancient world than it does today. It has to do with inheritance. It has to do with family economics. It has to do with family legacy in a culture where the name that you carried was your social status. The family that you came from determined the place that you had in society. In verse 2, Paul names Aphia in his greeting. For a woman to be identified by name in a formal letter like this was not typical and would have stood out as being very honoring and empowering, almost scandalously so, for her as Paul places her on equal footing with Timothy, with Onesimus, with Philemon. In ancient culture, daughters were not named legally. Only sons were named. I think it's possible that Aphia and Archippus are named because they live in the household and would have been personally affected and invested in the leaving of and the return of Onesimus which is another reason why naming Aphia was so empowering. She's being given a role to play in the story because she is a part of the story. As a point of apologetics in the Christian history of the Christian church, Christianity and the Bible around the globe and throughout history has always lifted women up. And statistically, Christianity has been has always been female, uh, majority female. And in the first church, early church, and throughout church history, it is often women who come to Jesus first. And so the people that Paul names in his letters have significance both back then and for us today. Paul also addresses the Colossian church as a whole. We do not know if the house church of Philemon represented the whole of the Colossian church, whom Paul addresses in his letter to the Colossians, but at the very least, Philemon's house church was one of the churches in Colossae. The reason it is important that the church was named in the letter is because anyone addressed, anyone addressed in a letter in this time was entitled to its contents. Paul expected that this letter would be read and passed around and that the information would be shared in common. Now keep in mind this is a personal letter, but Paul wanted its contents known collectively. Perhaps this is to hold Philemon accountable for what Paul is about to ask. Maybe it's to provide comfort to those hurt by Onesimus, or simply for the church to benefit from the example of Paul's pastoring the way we are today. Perhaps it was all of the above. Onesimus was a runaway slave, and I want to address very clearly and carefully this issue. We are all very aware 
of our nation's history of slavery. We wince every time slavery is mentioned. We are still dealing with the pain and the fallout of that terrible chapter of this country's history. Social trust was broken, and we're still trying to repair it. However, it's very important that we do not use our modern day, our contemporary filters, the bruises and the scars that we carry to filter how we read scripture. Slavery was universal in the ancient world. Slavery in the Roman world looked very different than it did during the transatlantic slave trade of chattel slavery. That is not to say that I or scripture, AKA God, is defending or condoning slavery. And it is no accident that God equates slavery to sin because of its effect on our lives and on our souls. So just because we see that slavery exists within the pages of scripture does not in any way justify the practice of owning an image-bearing human, especially for a Christian. So to profile a little bit in contrast to what our social context for slavery is, I'd like to outline what slavery was and was not in the Greco and Roman world. So first, let's look at what it was. Two of the most common ways you could become a slave, which admittedly sounds like a BuzzFeed listicle, in ancient Rome were to become a prisoner of war or to fall into a, a financial debt that you could not pay. Slavery then was a lot closer to indentured servitude that we see in history in the 17th and 18th centuries. So as a slave, you were owned by another human, but it was as much that the economic value of your work was owned as it was your personhood. You were not, you were not owned as a slave for its own sake. Slaves could own property. Slaves could even own other slaves. And one of the biggest differences was that emancipation was common, either because the debt was paid or there were pre-existing terms that were agreed upon from the outset of the arrangement. Also, and I don't say this lightly, a slave's quality of life was often better within the household of their master than it was after emancipation. It was very difficult to put your live life back together after slavery without the security of your master's economic position. And so it was very common for slaves to not accept their emancipation and to remain in the household of their master. So what was ancient Roman slavery, ancient Roman slavery not? And this is where the difference between our current understanding of what slavery has looked like in this country. If you were a prisoner of war or a financial debtor, you most likely were someone who lived close by. It's hard to not owe somebody money from the other side of the world at this time. And militias, armies were only conquering adjacent lands. So it was very likely that you looked like your master. You probably spoke a common language. You probably shared customs and practices. So we see that slavery was not the dehumanization of removing one's personhood through the identity of their culture or their language. <coughs> Excuse me. We do see in the story of Joseph that there was international trade in human life, but in contrast 
to transatlantic chattel slavery, it was not primarily the man-stealing enterprise that we have known in this country in the 18th and 19th centuries. It was not a lifetime sentence. You were not a slave for life, which means there was hope for life after slavery, especially for children born under slavery in the Roman system, which has a huge impact on the social identity of the slave population, to know that this was not a predetermined fate that you are going to suffer and your family for generations would suffer after you. So let me be clear at this point. The God of the Bible, our God, is the God of freedom. That's an amen, by the way. We don't amen much in this church, but that's an amen. Our God is a God of freedom. Amen. amen. His heart has been, always will be, for the individual freedom and flourishing of human beings. We will get more into the spiritual implications of, of slavery next week, but it is important that we go into the entire book seeing clearly that the story of the gospel means spiritual freedom as well as physical freedom. With all that said, let's look again at verses 4 through 7, which contains Paul indivi Paul's individual address to Philemon. And listen to how Paul is opening this conversation with his friend. It is full of praise and gratitude and encouragement. Remember, Paul is addressing a pretty serious issue with some pretty big implications. Paul opens by saying, I thank my God always. Personal, I also love Paul's ownership of his relationship with God, my God. And I think that's a, a small point of application when we, when we relate to God personally, that he is our God. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Paul is well aware of what he's about to address with Philemon, but in no way does it color the tone or the things that he addresses Philemon with. So let me ask, do we act this way? When there is someone in our life who we are in conflict with, how do we treat them? If there's someone who's living in a way that we don't like or agree with, or there's an issue in their life that we can see, do we step in to that situation, keeping in mind the image of God in that person and everyone else involved and pri prioritize each person's flourishing, which is what Jesus would call being salt, or do we back off? Do we create distance? Do we get cold towards that person? Do we become guarded? Maybe start to warn others in the, sp the spirit of kindness or concern? Paul is showing us what it is like to celebrate a brother, but a brother with a blind spot. He doesn't let that blind spot diminish his love and brotherhood, but he also doesn't allow or use his brotherhood to ignore that blind spot. If we read verses 4 through 7 by themselves, we would have no idea that there was an issue being addressed or that anything was wrong at all. And I think that's important to note. I think that's noteworthy for us to see that regardless of the situation that we have going on between each other or as a church, it should not change the way that we treat each other. If we had read these verses by themselves, this sermon would be all about encouragement and exemplary faith and what it looks like to be a model Christian. And it still is, by the way. 
Paul identifies several very specific points in Philemon's character that he thanks God for and lifts up as exemplary in the Christian life. He first names Philemon's love, both for Christ and for all the saints. Now again, remembering Wanda, it's important to mention again to remind us that our faith is between us and God as much as it is between each other. Our love for God cannot exclude our love of each other. 1 John 4 tells us that love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And those are heavy words. And those always, in myself, I check myself. Am I loving? He also calls out Philemon's faith. In verse 6, the word that Paul uses that is translated here, sharing, more literally means fellowship. For the word, the Greek scholars in the room, I know there's a few, the word is koinonia, which is a, a common word in Paul's letters, but it more, it more literally means, perhaps a fuller translation would be the common or mutual participation of faith that you share with all the saints. Now I think it's appropriate to say that that would include sharing your faith verbally with non-believers but to only refer to it that, at that, as that, as just sharing your faith with others, I think weakens it and leaves out a much bigger picture of what Paul is addressing in, a, in Philemon's faith. But notice, as Paul is addressing his faith, his love in Philemon, that there is no disclaimer, there are no qualifiers, there is no but this, there is no You've almost got it. There is, I love this about you. I need this about you. Paul says that I have been, and the saints have been refreshed by you. There is pure celebration of who Philemon is in the church. And it's very clear that Paul is recognizing Philemon as a truly positive presence in the Colossian church. Would we be able to show this kind of effusive love and affection for a brother or sister despite their weakness or blind spot or struggle? Or would we feel obligated to warn others or even to ask prayer for them in their struggle in a way that does not lift them up? Or, and this is where it gets really subtle, do we ask for prayer for ourselves as we explain how hard it is for us to try to love that person because of their struggle? And that's a pretty nuanced thing, but our focus should only be on, in that situation, where our lack of love is and celebrating the strength in the other person. This is, these, these nuanced applications and implications show us the richness of the gospel, right? It's easy to pull back. It's easy to label people. It's easy to avoid or to separate or even to maintain peace or to not rock the boat. But it's hard, it's complex, it's messy to engage in love. But Jesus said that the way people, that people will know that we belong to him is by the way we love one another. In John 13, 34 and 35. We talked about being salt a minute ago. Salt is a preservative. It works by being rubbed into, worked into 
the vulnerable parts of food. Meat was preserved by rubbing salt into it around the edges of where decay creeps in from the outside. That's how we should be with each other. We should be placing each other, we should be placing ourselves in the vulnerable places of each other's lives. We should be placing ourselves in the vulnerable places of, of our communities, of our societies, to hold it together, to keep it from falling apart. In the Old Testament, I forget which prophet, maybe it might be Jeremiah, where he encourages the Israelites to pray for, to wish for, to hope for the prosperity of the city of Babylon. A truly godless place. The prophet tells them, commands them in God's words to pray for their prosperity. So let's work together to push each other towards this kind of love, this kind of holiness, as Peter reminds us of God's command to be holy, for I am holy. Let us remember that we can see each other's specks way easier than we see our own. Let us see past each other's faults and try to see the work that God has done in each other. Let us refresh and celebrate each other. Church, let's pray for a culture of celebration, trusting that God is working in each of us and just the way that we saw in Philippians, that he's faithful to complete that work. Proverbs tells us that it is a blessed thing to cover up another sin. That does not mean hide it, that it goes away. But do we downplay each other's sin or look past it to the work that Jesus is doing in each other, knowing that the things that bug us, God is going to address in his time? It just might not be in the time or the order of things that we want or like. I think there are two specific points in this passage of scripture which are relevant to us in our time and culture. And I think, I'll be honest, I think, it's, I think it exposes two idols in our society two idols that we all, to varying degrees, worship, bow the knee to. Now, in the Bible, it refers a lot to sin. Sin is, St. Augustine refers to sin as disordered loves. It's things in wrong priority, right? There are sins of behavior and there are sins of the heart. There's always the sin under the sin. And I think it's helpful sometimes to remember and to refer to our sin as idols because it reminds us that we have things out of order. The two idols that I see here are the idol of privacy and the idol of autonomy. Privacy says we don't want no one in our business. I'm not saying that we all need to know all of each other's business, but family, we cannot love each other if we don't know each other, and if we don't know each other, we won't know what each other is going through, so we cannot love each other. How do we expect to deal with our own blind spots unless we have other people to speak into them? By definition, they're a blind spot. We don't know they're there. So are we willing to let each other in to speak into our blind spots and to be able to speak into each other's blind spots? Remember, being salt means stepping into each other's vulnerabilities. I would actually like to claim these verses for us to rebuild the concept of non-sexual intimacy. This letter is a very intimate letter between him and Philemon. Now, when we hear the word intimacy, we automatically think of sex. 
we automatically think of lights turned down, kids are in bed, that's where we go. But intimacy is so much more than physical connection. And so much of that physical connection is meant for us to be shared together as individuals and human beings. The, the words in this letter that Paul uses, they're not, they're not expressions. They're not throwaway words. They're not even words that the translators used to try to soften up what Paul is trying to say. Paul says, I am sending my heart in verse 12. That is what God did for us. God sent his heart to earth. We need to tear down our walls. We need to take our profiles to public. We need to open the curtains. We need to send that text. We need to make that phone call. How are you doing? Or, I'm not doing well. I need help. I need prayer. This means changing our lifestyle. It means changing our comfort zone. I think a lot of times we use our comfort zone as a way to not have to do things we don't want to do. But, I'm going to burst your bubble. Comfort zones are not permanent. Comfort zones are flexible, and comfort zones are lazy. Comfort zones only get bigger. They don't get smaller unless we force them smaller. So this is something that we have to work together as a church to push past our own comfort zones and to encourage each other when we see each other trying to break out. We need to push each other closer into relationship with Christ and closer into relationship with each other. That means when we get together, having real, honest, deep conversation beyond how you doing, how's work, you know, this or that, good to see you. It's messy, and it's going to be messy, but we're messy. The other idol is autonomy. And autonomy is a posture of even if you know my business, you don't get to speak into it. You don't get to tell me how to live my life. I'm going to do me. Mind your business. Right? Worry about yourself. That's my favorite. It's a lack of accountability to others. We live in an absence of how our actions affect those around us. And what does culture tell us? Culture tells us that happiness is found within, that enlightenment is found within ourselves, which leaves zero room for participation for other people in our lives. And we also know that it's not true. We know that happiness is not within. Because the more we look inside, the more we keep looking inside. We are a black hole of selfishness. How can there be any, part, any intimacy without participation? We live like islands. We all are little, little spits of life land that maybe we venture out on the boat, maybe it's a power boat, maybe it's a sailboat, and when we decide on our terms, we go visit other people's islands when their flag says, come visit me, or we sail right past and see, wave at them as we go. Some of us act like we're destination islands, and we expect people to come to us. If I had to give this sermon a title, which I didn't have to do, but by saying this, I'm giving it a title, it would be no islands, only a rock. Because Jesus is the rock that holds us all together. It's not a stretch. If we look around this room, 
Without Jesus, we probably wouldn't know each other. We probably wouldn't spend any time together. First Peter 2 says that Jesus is our cornerstone. The cornerstone establishes the foundation of a building. If the cornerstone is off or weak, the whole building falls down. Family, we need to get this right. We will have a negative impact on our community, like we saw in Rwanda, if we can't love each other well. I love you all, and I can speak for my wife. Two and a half years ago, one week before Johnny and Vaughn got here, <laughs> when Katie and I came for the first week, the number one thing we noticed was the love in the room. And that love continues. We do this room, and I've heard this from many of you, that the reason that we're here, the reason we keep coming is because of the love we have for each other. But church, let's go deeper. There's so much more to be had. There's so much more that God offers us. Jesus says that he's closer than a brother. He's the best brother you will ever have. He died so that you could call him brother. Jesus actually said, not verbally, but through his actions, Jesus said that you reject my family over my dead body. You literally have to walk over the dead body of Christ to ignore and to reject the family love that we have together through him. Jesus is the best brother we could ever ask for because our father is the best father we could ever hope for. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for this letter and the example that we have between Paul and Philemon. And I pray that it helps us to love each other better, deeper, and in a way that honors you more. In Jesus' name, amen.